The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and an investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, I am so honored to have with me a dear friend, as well as one of the premier experts in environmental nutrition. Angie Tagto is a registered dietitian like myself. Uh, she's also a Food and Society Policy Fellow, only she is unique in that she understands the deeper connections between soil and human health. I'd say you've got a corner on that market, Angie. <laughs> indeed, indeed, Melinda. Welcome. Thank you very much, Melinda. It's great to be here. Well, I have a question. You know, being being that we both went through dietetic training, how on earth, no pun intended, did you become interested in soil? Well, you know, like you indicated, Melinda, Connecting back to natural resources is not typically what, what dietitians get immersed in, especially in dietetics education. But it really took being transplanted here in Iowa uh, about 15, 17 years ago and uh, moving to an area where we were literally surrounded by fields of corn and soybeans and we had um, hog production nearby. And when we moved to our property, we uh, didn't really have the means of of caring for uh, the 12 acres. And so we continued to what we call cash rent the property out to the neighboring farmer. And uh, each year he would either put corn and then rotate the following year with beans and um, repeat that each year. And uh, after being here for several years, we uh, noticed a lot of changes within our landscape. We had a tremendous amount of erosion. Uh, we had the periphery of our of our landscape was not plantable. Things would not grow well. And it took a, a, an incident in the summer one year that helped me connect the dots, that uh, we, would, we would take the dogs um, for a walk around our property in the evening. And it seemed like at cer- certain points of the year, both dogs would get sick. And we never knew why, but they both got sick. And it was one day in which I was home on vacation, and lo and behold, the co-op came by to, I think, spray the beans, to put um, an herbicide on the beans. And uh, sure enough, we took the dogs for a walk, and within 24 hours, both of them were sick. Oh, my. So we decided that we really needed to create a change in our most immediate environment, the environment that we live in. And so what we decided to do is we learned a little bit more about what that natural landscape here in Iowa used to be oh, 175, 200 years ago, and that was tall grass prairie. So over the course of about 9 to 12 months, we learned as much as we could about restoring land back to its native ecosystem. And so we you know, politely told the neighbor that we didn't want to cash rent our, our property anymore. And we planted um, about nine and a half to ten acres back into native ecosystem, ecotype seeds. And now we have a very flourishing, very vibrant tall grass prairie that is now part of our landscape. So, Angie, were the dogs okay? Yes. In fact, um, they're both sitting here right next <laughs> to me. Um, 
Um, the one is 15 and the one is 12, and I have to say that they're both very healthy and doing very well, fortunately. Oh, thank goodness. And do you recall what it was that the farmer was spraying that made the dog sick? Um, at the time, this would have been in the mid to late 90s. It, it must have been an herbicide because it was applied to bean fields um, in July. Mm. And uh, so they're doing that actually right now in this area. They're, they're applying um, an herbicide to kill any weeds within, within those crops. Well, I should tell our listeners that I've actually been to your farm in Elkhart, Iowa, which is just north of Des Moines. And it's absolutely gorgeous. You have restored a piece of land. Um, and I can only imagine the wildlife that you now attract as, as opposed to, you know, back when it was being farmed solely in corn and soybeans, having those monocultures, you must not have seen much biodiversity. That, that's absolutely right. Um, we, we, in fact, even in our vegetable gardens closer to the house um, back then, we didn't even have things such as earthworms and, and, you know, other nematodes and things in our soil. But in the course of about nine years, um, I, I guess it's a way of nourishing the earth, so to speak, where we have um, where we significantly stopped the massive erosion that was happening on our land. And uh, I think we have restored just a tremendous amount of diversity, not only in plant material, but um, a lot of species both above and below the soil, which all contributes to a very um, dynamic and diverse ecosystem. And I can only imagine, you know, we've only started to see some of the studies linking organic agriculture, especially over time, creating more nutritious foods. I can only imagine that the vegetables that you grow in your garden are also benefiting from those increased, the earthworms and the microbes, and all of those beneficial elements in that soil. You know, I have to tell listeners, too, that I've heard you speak, and I know what you do. You bring a teaspoon of soil with you, and you ask people to tell you what is in that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I ask, I ask folks to think back to when they learned about food chains, you know, in elementary school and things. And this really puts into perspective that we as individuals are part of a much larger um, natural system. And so there's another model that I use, Melinda, called the soil food web, very much like a food chain. But at the center of that food web is what gives all life its soil. And, you know, the speaking of tall grass prairie, some studies have been done. And uh, here in Iowa, 175, 200 years ago, a majority of Iowa was covered in tall grass prairie. And tall grass prairie is one of the most diverse ecosystems in all of the world. And there's been many soil scientists who have done extensive studies on the composition of soil that comes from native grassland areas. And what they have found is that in just one teaspoon of soil that has come from undisturbed native grassland areas has somewhere between... 600 and 800 million individual bacteria. They have identified several miles of fungi just in that little teaspoon. There's over 10,000 protozoa and 20 to 30 different nematodes. In fact, they haven't even identified all of the organisms in that one teaspoon of soil yet. But what this tells me is that 
soil really is a living organism. You know, from a public health standpoint, we could say that that soil is really a community of organisms. It's just fascinating. I had been doing some research um, to prepare for our talk today, and I, I looked up Sir Albert Howard, and he has a quote that I just love, and I guess he must have said this back in the 1940s. He said, the real arsenal of democracy is a fertile soil, the fresh produce of which is the birthright of nations. Uh, Sir Albert Howard, you know, an agronomist from England in the 30s and 40s, he traveled the world, and... You know, what he so brilliantly linked, Melinda, as, as you stated, was how the health of our environment is so closely linked to the health of society, the health of individuals and the health of society. You know, Sir Albert Howard also said that uh, proper soil fertility builds appropriate levels of humus in the soil, and he indicated that that really was the basis for public health systems. Wow. So even, you know, 70, 80 years ago, it was an agronomist <laughs> who really identified these public health links back to the health of our environment. Well, I know that we are both um, very much committed to organic agriculture because of its attention to protecting soil, water, air, you know, the, the larger ecosystem. And I'm sure, like me, you know, you must be very troubled by what you see, you know, this, this notion of extracting the beneficial health, healthful elements of the soil and thinking we can add them back. Well, living here in the Midwest, Melinda, you know, we have primary economic development drivers is agriculture. And uh, especially here in Iowa, we have really excelled in just a couple of crops. And so about 80 to 85% of Iowa's landscape is now enrolled in row crop production, whether it's corn or soybeans. How much did you say? About 80 to 85% of Iowa's landscape is row crop? Is in row crop, yes. And with that monoculture system that we have, intensive agriculture system that we have, we have seen uh, major, major changes in our landscape. And the first threat to really the vitality of Iowa is the loss of soil. And even if we look at, for example, Iowa and Missouri, we're both in that um, upper Mississippi River basin, we still have on average, um, between us, Melinda, we have averages of about five to six tons of soil eroded per acre per year on average in the upper Mississippi River Basin. But because monocrop agriculture is so pervasive in Iowa, we actually measure, regularly measure, the amount of erosion using the Iowa Daily Erosion Project. And just to give you some figures as to how the landscape is changing, we have to remember that soil, being a natural resource, is finite. Mm. Once it's gone, it's pretty much gone. The Soil Science Society estimates that, you know, it takes 400 to 500 years just to build one inch of topsoil. But what we are measuring here in Iowa is the amount of erosion that has been happening over time. And it's been just over a year ago that once again we witnessed another 500-year flood mm. in Iowa. And so the Iowa Daily Erosion Project actually looked at erosion from June 1st 
through June 30th of 2008. And what we found is that just in those 30 days last year, there were about 60% of Iowa counties that experienced at some point, some region in their, in their county, upwards of seven tons of soil eroded per acre just in 30 days. So the question is, is that, well, what happened throughout the year? Well, in 2008, again, about two-thirds of Iowa counties witnessed just unprecedented erosion. Two-thirds of those counties uh, saw somewhere between 24 and 56 tons of soil eroded per acre just in 12 months. That's just unprecedented. But I think what we don't realize is that when we lose our soil, we lose our ability to produce food because with no soil, there would be no farms, and with no farms, we would not be able to produce food. Do you see or are you aware of reduced production rates now? Uh, with the recent um, policies within the Farm Bill um, and some of the adjustments that have happened in farm policy over the years, there are actually more opportunities for um, greater erosion, even though we are farming on a, quite a bit less acres than we did 40 and 50 years ago. Mm. So what does this mean for the future of Iowa? I, I know that you've told me in the past the percentage of food that's imported to Iowa, which always blows me away because I think with all that beautiful black fertile soil, surely you're producing most of the food that Iowans consume, but if it's mostly corn and soybeans, that must mean that those crops are exported for further processing and then re-imported. Am I thinking correctly? Absolutely. In fact, um, you know, oftentimes when people come to Iowa, they see the miles and miles and miles of corn, and they often assume that it's a sweet corn variety. Mm when in fact a majority of the crops that are grown in Iowa are actually grown for livestock feed. And so somewhere between you know, 50 and 65% of the corn grown in Iowa goes to feed livestock, and um, an even higher percentage of our soybeans go to feed livestock. And so with our top five uh, uh, crops that, that are grown in Iowa, two of them actually go to feed animals, and then we have hogs, chicken, and eggs that are our other commodity crops that are, are in Iowa. So we don't actually produce a lot of food. You know, if we parallel our agricultural crops to, you know, as what you're very familiar with, Melinda, Dietary Guidelines for Americans, right? we don't even, you know, cover a portion of the basis. And so what we have found is over the last 70, 80 years or so, um, our agricultural system has changed so much in Iowa and the fact that we don't grow any of those health-promoting foods anymore. In the 1920s, Iowa agriculture had quite diversity among its, its farm crops. Half of the, of the crops that were grown on at least 1% of the farms were fruits and vegetables, you know, things that we would, you know, strongly promote to improve health. Right. And today we don't grow any. In fact, that the, the farms that do produce any fruits and vegetables in Iowa actually produce it on less than 0.04% of the farmland. You know, I was just at a Missouri Food Safety Summit uh, for the last two days, and there was a gentleman there, um, I forget which federal agency he represented, but he said that 
We are now importing 50% of the produce that we consume. Well, yes, that, that is very true. In the last 10 years, we have doubled um, our imports of fresh fruits and vegetables into this country. In fact, uh, several years ago, the USDA Economic Research Service uh, did some evaluation as to the crops that are grown here in the United States versus what people living in the United States need to meet dietary guidelines for Americans. And what they have found is that uh, what is actually grown here in the United States isn't anywhere near what is needed to support good health. And so we have to rely on imports of fresh fruits and vegetables just to meet consumption demand. Which, which isn't even ideal. Exactly, which falls short of, of, of what our recommended dietary guidelines recommend. You know, I always tell people that the food dollars that we spend are like votes. They're votes for the kind of agricultural system that we want to support. And I wonder if you have any ideas on how we could shift this uh, kind of agricultural system. Is it through policy change? Is it through consumer buying behaviors? What can we do? Well, it really is a comprehensive, holistic approach, Melinda. Um, what people can do really at a household level, you know, within their families, is one, ask questions. You know, where is where is food um, coming from? How is it being grown? What kind of packaging is being used? Where is it being sold? Uh, you also have to ask how are farmers and farm workers and food processors being treated? Are they being paid a fair wage? And so once we start to think critically and start asking these questions, then we can start navigate, navigating through some of the, the challenges that we have. I think one of the most powerful things that uh, uh, eaters can do is to connect with farmers within their communities. And if those farmers happen to be growing uh, foods that promote health, all the better. Because not only are you going to be introducing more fresh, um, health-promoting foods to your plate, but you're also going to be supporting a neighbor. And by reinvesting your dollars within a community just increases the vibrancy and vitality of that community. So there's a lot of benefits in creating those relationships within communities between eaters and farmers. Here in Iowa, about 80-85% of the food that is put on our plates comes from out of state. And that is such a paradox knowing that we are at the heart of the Midwest, the heart of agriculture country. What about the row crop situation? You know, when you describe the percentage of row crops, 80 to 85 percent, the first thing that popped into my mind was erosion and soil going down and ending up in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. How do we get that kind of farm policy change so that farmers are growing less corn and soy and can we afford to grow less corn and soy or do we really need it or do we need to be switching some of that acreage away from those row crops and getting back on board with growing some of the produce that we're, that we're now importing? Yeah, it, it has to do with federal agriculture policy, Melinda, and um, it, it, it really stems back uh, to the 1970s under uh, USDA Secretary Earl Butts. He 
you know, it was his goal at that time to not only reform agriculture, but one of his goals was to create the quote-unquote cheapest food supply in the world. And based on the policies that he started in the 1970s, he did create one of the cheapest direct food supplies in the world, but at a tremendous cost. 30, 40 years later, we now realize that it is not a cheap food supply. And again, it came back from ag policy that, that created this, this system in which farmers need to operate. Farmers don't have a lot of flexibility due to a variety of reasons. For example, if a farmer here in Iowa who had a 1,000 acres in uh, corn and soybeans wanted to convert more than two acres into fruits and vegetables, he would actually jeopardize his uh, subsidy payment from the federal government. So that's just an example of how farmers are really stuck within a policy framework in which there isn't a lot of flexibility. There aren't a lot of options for them to produce foods in which they can be paid a fair wage and meet their operating costs. So it sounds like there are policy changes that need to be made, and I'm, I'm guessing that the subsidy payments are a barrier to getting good food on our tables, really. Indeed. And what do you think should happen policy-wise? Well, I think a lot of things need to happen. But uh, in order for us to really create a comprehensive food system that supports health, we really need to assure that our agriculture policies do promote public health. And that's where we have um, uh, quite a divide within USDA. We have a federal agency that oversees both. They oversee uh, nutrition standards and they also oversee uh, agriculture production. And when we've got that huge divide, that huge disconnect in which agriculture policies are not designed to support public health, that's where we need to create greater convergence between those, those two sets of policies. Now, at a local level, some recommendations for what people can do is, one, learn more about farm policy. It's a very complicated um, set of regulations here in the United States. And also connect with policymakers, whether it's um, at the local level, at the state level, or at the congressional level, and let them know how you feel about farm policy. Where can I learn more about farm policy? There's actually uh, quite a few places. Um, the first place I would recommend is through the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture website. And then you can also go to uh, uh, local and state uh, organizations as well. Uh, for example, here in Iowa, we have uh, several resources at hand. One is Practical Farmers of Iowa. Another one is the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture. Uh, we have other smaller organizations that also focus on various pieces of the Farm Bill. There's also national organizations in which people can connect with to help them navigate through farm policy, whether it's um, Farmers Union, um, Farmland Trust, uh, uh, National Sustainable Ag Coalition, just a whole variety of organizations that really distill some of this very complicated policy when it concerns agriculture down into <laughs> terms that you and I can understand. Exactly. Well, you know, and I want to repeat those because anybody can Google these, and they're wonderful sources, I agree. The Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture, Farmers Union, the Farmland Trust, National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, 
Uh, these are wonderful sources, especially to keep up with legislation and giving consumers or eaters, um, anyone who cares about the earth and who needs to eat to survive, um, some action steps. I, I think so often we hear about these situations and we feel helpless, you know, and I really appreciate knowing where I can go and what I can do to make a difference. And Melinda, if I, if I could just continue this um, into the nutrition uh, policy side of things, 2009 represents the year in which the Child Nutrition and WIC bill actually uh, becomes reauthorized, not really knowing where it's going to land this year because of the health care reform discussion on Capitol Hill. This is the large federal omnibus bill that uh, really dictates nutrition guidelines and, and feeding guidelines for children nutrition programs, such as uh, school lunch and school breakfast, and we have the WIC program uh, in that bill. We have um, child and adult care food programs, summer food service program. And so this is another uh, uh, complementary bill, so to speak, to the farm bill, in which we can introduce changes within our farming practices and our agriculture policies that really do support health. And, and what better way than nutrition programs for children? And where can I learn more about this bill, Angie? The, the best place that I would recommend at this point is the Food Research Action Committee, and that is, uh, I believe, www.frac.org. Wonderful. Well, we have reached our 30-minute limit. I knew the time would fly because I, I so appreciate and value the work that you do, and thank you for preserving your prairie and for helping others understand what happens with the connection between farming and, and agriculture as a whole and human health and the future of our planet, really. I want to close by letting our listeners know that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank you again, Angie, for being with me today. Oh, Melinda, my pleasure. Thank you.